Uh, let's, uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come again into your presence. We come in the name of the Lord Jesus. In Christ alone we stand. In him we find forgiveness and atonement and reconciliation and redemption. We thank you that he stood in our place, was condemned for us. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might be reckoned the righteousness of God in him. As we reflect together this evening on the significance of the work of Christ, we, we ask for your blessing. We have come perhaps from various uh, things today, various circumstances, things that have preoccupied us, things that have kept our attention, things that have concerned us and uh, gotten hold of our emotions perhaps. And uh, now as we, as we come together for this hour, uh, we ask that as we reflect on the scripture, as we uh, think your thoughts after you. Uh, we pray that we might always be subject uh, to you and to your word. Come, Holy Spirit, and grant us that blessing that is to be found in communion uh, with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. And hear us, Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, um, uh, today didn't go as planned, and uh, I was in Greenville this morning giving a paper on uh, middle knowledge, uh, which at the best of times is abstruse and abstract uh, at the Greenville Seminary uh, Annual Conference, and um, uh, this outline, as I was reflecting on it uh, when I arrived back this afternoon, uh, made little or no sense to me. Uh, and uh, so I'm, I'm not actually going to follow this outline. Be patient with me. Uh, I'll, I'll fix the outline and, and, and do the outline again and put it online, those of you who like to keep outlines. But uh, uh, I'm going to begin with the, with the front page. Uh, for sure, and then I might I might wander in a in a way that is now more logical to me than it was when I put this together yesterday. And um, uh, our our topic for this evening is uh, satisfaction. Uh, I can't get no satisfaction. Uh, Mick Jagger sang. Uh, or was it Mick Jagger and Keith Richards? Uh, I wasn't listening to this music in the 60s. I have to tell you, I, I, I know it was around. It, it sort of went over my head a little. Um, I, I do remember a battle royal uh, one, one summer between uh, my sister and I, and uh, we lived in a fairly small house. I shared a bedroom with my younger brother, and uh, she, being the only sister, had a bedroom all to herself, 
which was a point of contention in itself, uh, you understand, and I was reminding her of this in a text uh, this morning. Uh, she lives in, in Wales, and uh, I do remember she, she would have been playing, you know, the Beatles or, or Mick Jagger or, some, or somebody, so, something uh, in the 60s, and I would be uh, playing Beethoven or Brahms, uh, because that was my disposition then and, and now, for sure. And uh, uh, those of you who can remember 45 revolutions per minute records, uh, you know, about that size. And, um, of course, I was playing LPs, because classical music tends to be longer. So I was on the 33 and the third uh, revolutions a minute and uh, on a turntable where you had to lift the lid and put the LP down and you couldn't close the lid because it was wider than, than the, the square box. Um, but it had sufficient volume, although it was mono, not, not even stereo. Uh, um, and, and, and competing uh, with, with Mick Jagger, uh, I can't get no satisfaction. Uh, last week we were talking about, uh, and we've been talking about paradigms, uh, biblical and theological paradigms, uh, to understand uh, the work of Christ. Uh, simply viewing, say, a movie of the death of Jesus doesn't give you a doctrine of the atonement. All that that conveys is the horrific death of an individual. And actually, as deaths go, and, and please don't misunderstand what I'm about to say, there are more horrific deaths than crucifixion. So, so it isn't even conveying the most horrendous death imaginable. There are worse deaths than crucifixion. So simply, simply viewing a movie of the crucifixion of Jesus doesn't in itself tell us or give us an answer to what, what was the death of Jesus about. To the Jews, it, it, was, uh, it was an indication that he was a blasphemer and that the curse of God had come down upon him. And uh, it was the just deserts for somebody who had committed blasphemy. For the Romans, uh, it was viewed as foolishness. Uh, one more messianic pretender uh, being killed. Uh, so so we, need, we need to understand, we need a, a theology, we need a, a word, a logos, we need, a, we need an explanation for Calvary. And for the entirety of the work of Christ. Now, not even the Gospels do that. The Gospels will describe, though not in detail, but the Gospels describe the death of Jesus. But, but you have to go into the epistles. You have to go uh, into the words of Paul and Peter and John in order to find a fuller explanation of what the cross was all about. Uh, an explanation that is rooted deeply in Old Testament uh, predictions and pictures uh, of uh, of sacrifice. Now, 
Sometimes the explanation for the atonement implies uh, biblical words, words like uh, redemption, uh, words like reconciliation, uh, words like propitiation, and, and if your Bible doesn't have the word propitiation in it, put it aside and get a new one. And get one that has the word propitiation uh, in it because it's an important word. Um, sometimes we, we have to do... Sometimes in theology we, we have to bring together all the material of Scripture and, and answer the question, how does all this material fit together by implying words that are not necessarily biblical words, like, like Trinity. Uh, we believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, that there are three persons and one God, three in oneness or one in threeness. Trinity doesn't mean three, it means one in three or three in one. And uh, that's true when we come to the atonement. And, and two particular words, uh, one, one word will be victory, and we'll, we'll be looking at that shortly, and I think we might even be looking at that next week. Um, but, but two words uh, that have emerged as important words, uh, definitive words in understanding the atonement are substitution and satisfaction. Substitution and satisfaction. These two words uh, were uh, employed and used in particular by uh, the 12th century uh, theologian uh, Anselm, Anselm of Canterbury. Uh, and uh, in, in the many things that Anselm wrote about, uh, one of the things that he wrote about was a book very important book, a very important text uh, called uh, Cur Deus Homo Why the God-Man Why did God become man? Uh, in, in which uh, he explores the, the, the reason for the incarnation and the reason for the death of Jesus and in, uh, in the flow of that argument uh, as, he, as he explores that question uh, he, he comes up with these two words, substitution and satisfaction. They, they were originally Latin words, but now they've, they've, they've come into the English language, and they're part and parcel of the way we understand the atonement. Last week we were thinking of substitution. Um, uh, we were looking at the preposition, uh, uh, the prepositions huper and anti. Uh, translated in uh, the English, uh, the English often translated in the English uh, for. Uh, he loved me and gave himself for me. W what does for me mean? He gave himself for me. He died for me. And, and, and uh, that preposition, uh, uh, Hooper, uh, even a theologian like Karl Barth, uh, who's by no means an evangelical, but uh, said that, uh, that uh, it is the most important term. Uh, Hooper, for example, that little preposition was the most important term in the New Testament in understanding uh, the work uh, of, uh, of Jesus. That he died uh, on, in my behalf, in my place, in my room, in my stead. 
that, that whatever he was doing on the cross, he was doing for me, in my place, as a substitute for me. And uh, we, we looked at that uh, last week, and uh, that has immense uh, importance and significance, the doctrine of the, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And we were looking, uh, we were looking last week uh, at uh, denials uh, of the idea of substitution. Well, another term is this term, um, satisfaction. Um, look at, uh, look at the uh, front page of your outline and uh, two particular statements uh, that I want to draw your attention to in uh, the Westminster Confession, one in chapter 8 uh, and one in chapter 11. One in chapter 8 on the Redeemer, uh, on Christ the Redeemer, and chapter 11 on uh, the doctrine of uh, justification. And in chapter 8, section 5, the Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he through the eternal spirit once offered up to God, uh, a reference to Hebrews, has fully, and here's the word, has fully satisfied the justice of his Father. Oh, this, is a, uh, this is a central part of the Westminster Confession's understanding of the atonement. Uh, and uh, right at the heart of the divine's uh, understanding of the atonement of the cross of Christ is that it satisfies the justice of his Father. Uh, that's a very significant statement. It's significant theologically. It's significant historically as to why they would put it in those terms, why they would use that particular language, that, that the death of Jesus satisfies the justice of his Father. Now, it goes on to use biblical terms. Uh, he purchased, redemption language, not only reconciliation, that's a biblical term, but also an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given to him. And, and that last sentence we'll come back to at a later stage when we ask, for whom did Jesus die? And the confession seems to be giving you an answer to that question there. Uh, but I simply want to draw attention to the use of that word satisfaction. He satisfied the justice of his Father. And then in chapter 11, and uh, now the confession is talking about the doctrine of justification, uh, that doctrine that Luther called the article of the standing uh, or falling of the church. Actually, no one can find where Luther said that, although everybody attributes that to Luther, but he never actually put it in those very words. Um, those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them, that's a Roman Catholic idea, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting them as righteous, it is not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone that they are justified. It is not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other act of Christian obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction. The obedience and satisfaction of Christ to them 
who receive and rest on him and his righteousness by faith. Uh, men do not have this faith of themselves, it is the gift of God. Uh, but there's, there's the, the term again, the term uh, satisfaction. Now, Dr. Sproul, and uh, since I'm on my way to Ligonier, let me, uh, let me cite Dr. Sproul because he was on my mind today. Uh, and uh, Dr. Sproul tells this, uh, this story somewhere. Uh, the time when he was in, uh, in uh, where, uh, Pittsburgh, where, where Neil comes from, uh, in Pittsburgh at a presbytery meeting. And uh, he was uh, and at a presbytery meeting, and it happened yesterday, uh, Mark uh, and uh, Brad uh, were licensed yesterday, so they had to go through uh, licensure exams, and so... Uh, and both of them did exceptionally well and did First Presbyterian Church uh, proud yesterday. You would have been uh, proud and delighted by their, uh, by their performance yesterday. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm not saying that in any other way, but in a sincere way. They were, they were absolutely splendid. Uh, and they were examined on uh, Bible and theology and polity and church history and uh, maybe some other things. And, uh, and pl- passed with flying... Uh, colors, um, but there, there was a point, and, and there was one examiner, he's the chairman of the credentials, or that's a PCA term, but whatever that committee is called in the ARP, uh, but he was examining them. But there, there's a point at which he says to the rest of the presbytery, now does anybody have any questions? Now, every presbytery that I've belonged to in the last 35 years, there's always someone <laughs> There is always a, a, typically a ruling elder who has questions, and it's typically the same question every single time, although yesterday uh, our, our uh, candidates got away scot-free, uh, almost, almost scot-free from questions, but Dr. Sproul had a question uh, in his presbytery uh, way back in Pittsburgh, and the question uh, was a true or false question. Now, true or false questions are always tricky questions. If, if you get a true or false question in an exam, uh, and I've, I've set many of them, they are always intended to trip up the one who's answering the question. Because you have to read the question very carefully uh, because somewhere in the question there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a little, little moment uh, where you, you might think it's saying this, but actually it's saying something else. So the question was this. Uh, is it in the cross of Christ, this is the question, true or false, is it in the cross of Christ that we find the only means by which God clears the guilty? And so here's the statement, it is in the cross of Christ that we find the only means by which God clears the guilty. True or false? It's a tricky question. It's, it's not a fair question. It's not even a nice question, Dr. Sproul, uh, because I think I would have answered that true, except that the answer is false. And it's false because, because of this, that that in no, there is no way in which God 
clears the guilty in, in the sense that he simply, he simply declares them to be innocent. What, what he does is, is, that he, is that he atones for the guilty. He redeems the guilty. He has to actually do something in order to clear the guilty. That was his point. And uh, he asked that tricky sort of question. Uh, by the way, all of the, all of the ministers to whom he answered the question got the question wrong. Because uh, all of them answered, it, answered the question true when, when, when the question was intended to be a question to which the answer would be false. Now, what is he getting at? Well, what he, would, what he was trying to get at was, how does, how does God clear guilt? How is guilt dealt with? How is sin dealt with? Um, this is what satisfaction, the idea of satisfaction, this is what it's addressing. Uh, it's addressing something in God, but it's also addressing something in the human being. It's addressing the issue of guilt, uh, but it's also addressing something in, in uh, God. Let, let's talk about the guilt part. Uh, in the 1960s, and, and I'm, I'm going to guess now, but it was, I think, either 1962 or 3 or 4, some, somewhere in the first half of the 1960s, there was a, there was a Swedish... A theologian uh, whose name was Christus Stendhal, but that's not uh, important. But he was giving a lecture. Uh, He he was a teacher of theology. uh, And uh, he was giving a lecture in New York uh, to a group of psychologists. And that's that's deeply significant, that he was actually speaking to psychologists. Uh, And the the lecture was called, the title of it, and and, and it's become an infamous title um, for, for a variety of reasons. And, but the title of it was called um, The Introspective Conscience of the West. It's, it's a fascinating title. You can, almost, you can almost think through what he's going to say. That the problem of the West has been an introspective conscience. So the, the problem with the West, and by the West, he was really saying it's the problem of the Reformation. It's, it's the problem that the Reformation brought on, uh, on the church. And before that, it was the same problem in medieval Catholicism, and that's guilt. That, that, that folk are walking about with problems of guilt. Uh, they're motivated by guilt, they're driven by guilt, uh, they're oppressed by guilt, they're held under by guilt. That's the problem of Western culture. That was his thesis. And uh, right in the crosses of his thesis uh, was the debate between uh, Protestants and Catholics on the nature of justification and how sin is dealt with and how guilt is being removed. And, and his conclusion was a, 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 a pox, a plague, uh, on both houses here, uh, because guilt is not the issue. Uh, that's where he wanted, and of course, uh, so the, you, can, you can hear uh, uh, the psychologists, all, uh, especially the Freudian psychologists, uh, nodding uh, sagely in agreement that is the problem. Uh, actually, it's what keeps them in business, uh, so they shouldn't have been too pleased about it. Um, but, but, uh, but, but it's a fascinating thesis, the introspective conscience of the West. Guilt. Um, 
I'm not following the, the story except in headline form, so I, I, don't, I don't know any of the details, uh, but uh, whatever his name is, the South African who's on a, a murder trial for killing his, was he married to her, or girlfriend or whatever, uh, but, but that issue. But, but what I've heard is what you always hear in these sort of cases in the headlines is uh, somebody is looking for justice. You know, we might say we don't, we don't, we don't care about justice, but, but when, something, when something happens to somebody that you love or when it happens to you or when it happens to your parents or your children or your best friend, you, you want justice. Uh, we, we tend to use it in, in kind of relational and emotional language and we say we need to get closure, whatever that means, right? But, but the issue behind it is we want justice. We want justice to be done and we want justice to be seen to be done. Um, justice needs to be honored. Now, let's get back to this word satisfaction. Right? There are two places in the Westminster Confession as at the heart of the understanding of the atonement is the idea of satisfaction. Now, uh, folk read that statement and they say uh, things like, and you can, you can almost anticipate what they're going to say, that that idea of satisfaction is a, is a medieval idea, Right? It comes from Anselm in the 12th century, no marks whatsoever for getting that right. Uh, it comes out of medieval culture for sure. Uh, let's take it a step further. Let's play the devil's advocate for a minute. What, what lies behind the idea of satisfaction in, in medieval uh, culture? Uh, th your honor has been impugned. You know, somebody has said something about the integrity of your mother your honor has been impugned. You throw down the gauntlet and its pistols. No, I'm in the wrong century. It's uh, swords uh, at, at, at dawn uh, at, uh, at such and such a place. Because my honor has been impugned and I need my honor to be satisfied. Now, uh, folks, folks say... Uh, that's an unworthy notion of God, uh, that, that, that God, God's honor uh, is out of place, uh, that, that, he's, that, he's, uh, that he's taken the, the hump, as we say, uh, that, he's, uh, that, he, that he needs, uh, he needs his, uh, his, his honor to be, to be, uh, to be rectified, uh, to, be, uh, to be made whole uh, again. Well, Let's go into the scriptures for a minute. Let's, uh, let's look at a passage like uh, Galatians. And, and uh, if you don't have your Bibles with you, I'll, I'll, I'll read the text and explain it uh, uh, slowly and carefully. But it's not in your outline. Don't be looking for it in your outline. The outline didn't make sense to me when I came home uh, this afternoon. So this is another outline. Uh, it'll be in the outline that will eventually go up online, but, but uh, Galatians 3 is the passage I want to think about. Galatians 3, 10 uh, through 14, very, very famous passage about justification. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. The law... 
this is Paul, the law comes to you and says, obey me. And not obey me in bits and pieces, but obey me in, in totality. Obey me in jot and tittle. In all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Right? Quoting, uh, quoting uh, from uh, the passage, uh, from perhaps a couple of passages, but the passage with Abraham for sure. Uh, but the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Right? So if you're going to say I'm justified by the law, what does that mean? You've got to obey the law, and you've got to obey the law in all of its totality. Uh, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now this passage is talking about blessings and uh, curses. Blessings and curses. It's quoting from uh, Deuteronomy, uh, uh, I think, 21, 23. Uh, cursed uh, is everyone who hangs upon a tree. Right? It's looking at the cross. Jesus uh, was nailed to a tree. He was nailed to a cross. Uh, that, from Deuteronomy 21, is a symbol of cursing. Jesus' atonement, Jesus' death, Jesus' crucifixion was in some form or another a curse. Now what is a curse? What do we mean when we talk about a curse? Uh, I heard today that the Malaysian government had hired a witch doctor. Uh, you might have heard that news too. Uh, to find this plane. Wasn't successful. Uh, which I'm relieved about, uh, to be honest. Uh, but they'd hired a witch doctor. And you may, you know, when you think about curses, what do you think about? Uh, you know, voodoo or a, or a witch doctor uh, uttering some incantation, eye of newt and tongue of lizard and, and uh, Shakespeare's Macbeth. Uh, uh, hubble, bubble, toilet, trouble, fire, burn, and cauldron, bubble. That, that, that opening section of Macbeth and the three witches. Uh, some of you might think of uh, Gollum uh, in uh, Lord of the Rings. Uh, he was always saying, curses and ashes, uh, curses, I, 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 we hate them. Uh, what, what do we mean? What does the Bible mean when it talks about curses? Well, it's a covenant term. Uh, it's what the book of Deuteronomy is about. It's, the book of Deuteronomy is about curses and blessings. It's about covenant life and consequences of covenant life. And there are curses and there are, and there are blessings. Remember how in Deuteronomy 27, 28, there are my, my Old Testament scholars sitting here uh, right beside me. Uh, Deuteronomy 27 and 28 and you've got the two mountains. Uh, and, and from one mountain they're shouting curses, and from another mountain they're shouting uh, blessings. Uh, that, that would be a phenomenal moment in time to go back to, and to be in the valley, 
and, and listening to them shouting curses on one side and blessings on the other and uh, an explanation of, uh, of covenant uh, life. You know, at the end of a service, uh, you get uh, a benediction, a, a blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Numbers uh, 6, 24, 25, 26. The Lord bless you. Now Paul is saying here in Galatians 3 that Jesus was cursed. He got cursed. He got the curses. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. We get, we get the blessings, he got the curses. So, so Paul in Galatians 3 is saying, there's something, about, there's something about the cross especially, about the work of Christ, that, that depicts covenant curses. Instead of getting the Lord bless you and keep you, he got the Lord curse you and shun you. The Lord frown upon you, hide his smile from you, give you hell. Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. Uh, Galatians 3, I think, is giving you an interpretation of Jesus' words when he cites the psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that, that's not Jesus saying, I'm lonely, I'm cold. That's Jesus saying that the fellowship of his heavenly father has been utterly withdrawn. He is forsaken. God has forsaken him. God has cursed him. Paul is saying. You know what? You know, Calvin is uh, Calvin in the 16th century is um, uh, he's exegeting the Apostles' Creed. Uh, and the statement, um, he descended into hell. Uh, it troubles uh, Christians. It troubles uh, from time to time. Uh, somebody will say, what, 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 what does that mean? Should Christians say he descended into hell? And uh, Calvin answered that by saying, what does that mean? What, does he what is hell? Hell is being forsaken by God. That's what hell is. That the smile of God, the blessings of God, the covenant fellowship of God is removed. And what have you got left? You've got the anger of God. And the wrath of God. And the displeasure of God. And for Calvin, that's, that's what happens on the cross. When Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is experiencing covenantal cursing. He's experiencing covenantal cursing as my substitute in my room and in my, and in my stead. But he's doing more than that. He is satisfying 
He is satisfying the justice of God. Now let's think about that a little more. Uh, we, we, we've just sung uh, Getty's hymn, In Christ Alone. And uh, last year, uh, uh, the Presbyterian Church in the, in the United States of America, the PCUSA, were, were compiling uh, a new hymn book. It was to be published last October, and it has been published, uh, a brand new hymn, hymn book. And uh, what you do when you, when you publish a new hymn book, uh, um, you, you, you go through a lot of new hymns and, and evaluate them, and, and uh, they wanted to put in in Christ uh, alone. Except that uh, someone raised an objection to the second stanza, uh, where it says, In Christ alone who took on flesh, uh, fullness of God in helpless babe, the gift of love, the righteous uh, and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Ah, there it is, the word, satisfied. Um, the USA Today, in a banner headline, August, uh, uh, August 5 of last year, uh, fans of a beloved Christian hymn won't get any satisfaction. It's a clever headline. Uh, they won't get any satisfaction. Uh, on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Uh, apparently, a, a, a version of this hymn had found its way into a Baptist hymnal, unbeknown to Keith Getty and uh, Stuart Townend, but a version of this hymn had found its way into a Baptist hymn book in which those words had been changed to, the love of God was magnified. Uh, and, uh, and, and now, because they were, they, were, they were checking copyright issues, and, and the copyright for this hymn uh, belongs to Getty and uh, Townend, and Getty and Townend uh, objected to the change and insisted that if this hymn was to go into the new uh, PCUSA hymn book, that it would go in with, with those words, the wrath of God was satisfied, and uh, the vote was taken, and the vote was nine to six, uh, against including the hymn in the hymn book. So in Christ alone doesn't appear uh, in that hymn book because, uh, and let me, uh, let me um, uh, quote uh, one of the committee, that lyric comes close to saying that God killed Jesus. And then he added, the cross is not an instrument of God's wrath or wrath. The cross is not an instrument of God's uh, wrath. Well, um, our confession, uh, the Westminster Confession, insists that the idea of satisfaction and satisfying the justice of God belongs at the very, at the very heart uh, of the atonement. That, that the justice of God, when when God acts, he acts in integrity. 
He cannot do anything that violates his nature. And his nature is, is a righteous nature. His nature is a holy nature. And sin has to be punished. Now, there was a theoretical discussion in the 17th century. It, it was a discussion that went back into medieval times, but it resurfaced in the 17th century as to whether or not God could have willed a, a way of salvation other than by substitutionary penal uh, satisfaction. In, in theory, could, could God will that? You, you may wonder why people ask questions like that, but, but you, you have to understand that if you, if you place the will of God as the most dominant thing, and if you say something like, God can do anything, right? Actually, that's not right. But, but God can do anything. He can will anything. No, he cannot. He cannot will anything that's contrary to his being. He cannot will anything that's contrary to his nature. But, but you can understand, you can raise the will of God, and in the 17th century, with all the talk about sovereignty of God and Calvinism and so on, the will of God was a very important topic. So the chairman of the Westminster Assembly, a man by the name of William Twiss, actually wrote a very extensive book suggesting that in theory God could have willed the salvation of sinners simply as an act of will. Now, having entered into a covenant of redemption with his son, he was then kind of, if I can put this crassly, locked in to the way of salvation that's described for us in the Bible. But, but hypothetically, he could have willed it in some other way. Uh, I, I, I personally think that's utter nonsense, but, but, but that was a view... Uh, that was held by some, Samuel Rutherford, Sands of Time was thinking, held that view. John Owen, in his early life, held that view and then changed his mind and then wrote a 900-page treatise on the vindication of the justice of God, making sure that everybody got the point that he didn't actually hold that view anymore. Uh, and, uh, and, and besides which, besides which, I think it's a, a misunderstanding of, of the nature in which God's attributes uh, uh, belong to each uh, to each other uh, and relate to each other. So, so this this notion of satisfaction. What is it that's being satisfied? Well, th there were views in the first couple of centuries uh, that what was being satisfied was the devil. You know, the devil needed to be satisfied. Uh, he needed to be paid. Uh, something in order for him to, to keep quiet uh, and, and so on. And that, and that uh, uh, in crass terms, uh, the atonement was a payment uh, to the devil. Oh, C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles. Sorry if you're a fan of C.S. Lewis, but that is exactly what C.S. Lewis, I think, is conveying in the, in the Narnia Chronicles. Uh, the, the, the witch needs to be paid a price. Uh, and it's in the movie, it's, 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 it's in your face. Uh, it's a ransom to the devil. It's a ransom to the evil one. That's not what the Westminster Confession is saying. The satisfaction here is the justice of God. It's not the honor of God so much, but the justice of God. 
God is righteous. God is holy. That that one of the reasons why we we find the notion, I say we in in a generic sense now, but one of the reasons why, say, contemporary culture would find the notion of satisfaction difficult is because we have such a low view of sin. We have such a low view of the law of God, or any other, or any law for that matter. Um, you know, we, we think if we can get away with it, then, 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 then so much for the good. Um, but here is uh, Paul in Galatians 3 saying, if you're going to obey the law, you've got to obey it in all of its parts, in its totality. Because that's what it demands. And the justice of God demands satisfaction. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. It's the notion of satisfaction. Um, Now, uh, one or two texts here. Uh, Let me... Let me... uh, let me go to Ezekiel, Ezekiel 7, 7 and 8, and uh, uh, I'll read it to you, Ezekiel 7, 7 and 8. Your doom has come to you, O inhabitant of the land. The time has come, the day is near, a day of tumult and not of joyful shouting on the mountains. And then verse 8, now I will soon... Pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you. Now, uh, the word, uh, the word here, uh, the word here, um, I will pour out, verse 8, I will pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you. And it's the idea of, of God's anger, which is the reflex of his holiness towards sin. God's anger is spent. Th- that's the idea. It is, it is the justice of God is satisfied because the anger of God is spent. All that sin deserves is, is met to the full. In Jesus Christ. It satisfies the justice of God. And satisfies it completely. Uh, take a text like First uh, John, uh, John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Now, now think about that for a minute. If you confess your sins, John is saying, it is the just thing. It is the just thing for God to forgive you. Why is it the just thing? Because all of the anger of God against sin has been spent. It has been spent in Jesus. When he was made a curse for us. So that in a sense, what John is saying is, God has no choice now. It is the righteous thing. It is the the correct thing for God to do. 
to forgive you because sin has been atoned for sin has been covered uh, beneath the cross of Jesus and then and that him O safe and happy shelter O refuge tried and sweet O trusting place uh, trusting with a wine uh, a, a meeting place especially for lovers uh, a trusting place O trusting place where heaven's love and heaven's justice meet what is the cross a place where heaven's love and heaven's justice meet where the justice of God is satisfied uh, so that was the lecture I was intending to give uh, rather than the one that was uh, outlined and I, and I apologize once again it, it was a it was a difficult day and uh, um, I'll, I'll get the proper outline back up uh, for you for those who want to keep, uh, keep these, uh, these uh, notes now before we segue into a time of uh, prayer uh, let, me, let me close this part of uh, center point in, in prayer let us pray Heavenly Father our hearts are full uh, when we think of uh, the cross of Christ where heaven's love and heaven's justice meet where our Lord Jesus cried my God, my God why have you forsaken me where he was made a curse for us satisfying divine justice meeting every threat for violated and broken law in himself he got it all so that we might get the blessings father we thank you we thank you for a substitutionary atonement uh, and a penal substitutionary atonement that satisfies uh, divine justice now bless us we pray uh, fill our hearts with love for Jesus and all that he has done for us and we ask it in his name, amen.